welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, episode 14, Chasing Bessus. This is the part of the episode where I tell you what we did last week, what we will be doing today, and what Tom Hanks films to watch. But I'm going to shake it up a bit this week, as I'd like to give thanks to some of our listeners. Some of you may have noticed that you haven't been able to download episodes 12 and 13, or at least not through the update feature in your iTunes library. This is because the XML file, RSS feed, which you will know all about if you watch my lovely YouTube demonstration, does not like me using the AND symbol. You know, the one that looks like an 8. This caused the whole feed and by extension iTunes subscription, to stop working. But it's all back to normal now, and I'd like to thank listener Gavin for being first on the scene, and helping to solve the problem. I'd also like to thank listener Jason for confirming the problem was something that either I or iTunes did, and it turns out it was me. Now, you may also be noticing an improved audio quality. This is the point where you all go, No, Jamie, I don't know what you mean. It's still as awful to listen to as ever. Well, hopefully you won't do that, but we'll be smiling with relief that I'm not screaming down your ear with my... er... exuberant S's. Well, at the very least, not screaming as much. Listener Scott sent me an email last weekend to let me know in the nicest possible way that the audio quality was terrible. I did know this, and I am really sorry about that. Former listener Sadar68 of New Zealand gave up because of the quality, and it has been brought up on the US iTunes in a lovely little review from listener at Forever. Anyway... While replying to Scott, I had a play around with some of the sound settings in Audacity, which are quite scary to look at, and I think this somewhat solved the problem. So I'm going to go back and improve all the previous episodes, which will mean iTunes will re-download them and it may look like iTunes is doubling them all up. So you may as well just unsubscribe, delete everything, then resubscribe. Now we have all of that out of the way, let's get back to the narrative, eh? Darius had just died in July 330 BC. Alexander was with a small group of his best troops when Darius died. Remember that there were other groups of soldiers, one under the command of Craterus and another led by Parmenio, while Alexander's own force was spread out. After reuniting with his troops and Craterus's, he advanced into Hycania, which is by the Caspian Sea. The Caspian, I'm sure you know, is a very large lake to the east of the Black Sea. However, the Greeks did not know this, and so I find it incredibly interesting to see what they thought this body of water was. Plutarch suggests that Alexander thought it was an overflow of the Sea of Azov, the body of water next to the Crimea just off the Black Sea. Plutarch dismisses this idea, saying, However, various geographers had already discovered the truth many years before Alexander's expedition. 
they had recorded their conclusion that it was the most northerly of four gulfs which run inland from the outer ocean, and was called the Hycarnian or Caspian Sea. Ah, yes, the famous Caspian Gulf. Alexander wanted to come to his own conclusions, but he died before he could finish a fleet to sail to the Caspian Sea and find out. I'll remind you of this towards the end of our little podcast. Alexander may have thought it was an overflow of the Sea of Azov at one point, but Arian states that the discovery of the Persian Gulf made him suspect otherwise. J.R. Hamilton believes it to be Aristotle who told Alexander that the Caspian was not a gulf. Now, just after Alexander had united his forces, he once again divided them, briefly to subdue the Tarpurian mountains and catch any Persian mercenaries that were rumoured to be there. He couldn't find any and advanced to Zadrakarta, where he reunited with some of them and received many high-ranking Persian defectors, as well as some delegates from Greece. As they had before, the Greeks asked for Greek mercenaries who were now prisoners of war to be returned, but Alexander refused. As far as Alexander was concerned, the Greeks who had fought against their country were no better than criminals. Instead, Alexander told the Greeks to either join his force or see to their own safety. They joined him, and he also asked for an officer to give the prisoners safe conduct. Alexander next advanced into Mardia. He quelled the region, and was met by more Greeks. Only these ones were looking to make a deal with the Persians. Alexander let all of them who were not part of the League of Corinth leave, but the others he forced into paid service. Alexander then returned to Zadrakarta in Hycania, then went through Parthia to the borders of Aria. He was then met by the satrap of the province, Satibazanes, at the town of Susia, and Alexander confirmed his office and sent him back with a companion and forty javelrymen. This is important. Remember it. While there, reports came in on the activities of Bessus. Bessus, who had escaped to Bactria, was proclaiming himself king of Asia. He dressed himself in the royal fashion, and was gathering together a reasonable force, having Parthians, Bactrians, and Scythian mercenaries. Alexander was at once on his way to Bactria, with his whole force. While on the way, reports came in that Satibazanes had revolted, had killed the companion and the forty men and was arming and concentrating the native Arians at the provincial capital, Artacoana, and assuming Alexander would leave, was planning to join and reinforce Bessus. Alexander was not amused. He gave command of the troops on the spot to Craterus, and marched back with some of his men as quickly as he could. He covered seventy-five miles in two days, taking Satibazanes completely by surprise. As soon as word came Alexander was at hand, everyone abandoned the revolt. They fled to the hills. Well, the villages anyway, where they were rounded up by Alexander's men. 
Some of the rebels were put into slavery, others were killed. Satibazanes escaped. Alexander reunited with Craterus, and then advanced to Tsar Angia, which was controlled by Barsinates, who, you'll remember, was involved in the murder of Darius. Alexander took the territory. Barsinates fled to the Indians west of the river Indus, but the Indians returned him to Alexander, who killed him. Alexander then advanced on the land of the Arius Banes. When Cyrus was expanding his own empire, two hundred years before, these people had been kind to him, and Alexander rewarded the Arius Banes for this, treating them with the utmost respect. This policy was clearly influenced from the death of Darius, as you can see Alexander playing the parts of his successor to perfection. This was part of Alexander's grand conciliatory policy, which tried to unite the Persian and Macedonian peoples, which we will discuss more next week. Alexander continued his subduing of various tribes on his way to Bactria, until the report came that Satibazanes had been reinforced with 2,000 cavalry and had returned to Aria and had again gone into revolt. He would not go in person this time, sending the Persian Artabasis, along with a pair of companions, as well as ordering the satrap of Parthia to help. They were even more successful than Alexander, managing to kill Satibazanes. Alexander continued on his way to Bactria, crossing what Arian calls the Indian Caucasus, considering the mountain range an extension of the Caucasus around modern Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. We today call these mountains the Hindu Kush. This was a hard slog. It was by now the winter of 330-329 BC, and Alexander was marching through snowdrifts. Bessus tried scorched-earth tactics to stop Alexander advancing into Bactria, hoping a lack of supplies would force Alexander to stop. Bessus only had around 7,000 troops, no match for Alexander, but Alexander just kept going. Bessus retreated across the river Oxus and burned his boats, hoping this would stop Alexander, but he left Bactria undefended, which of course surrendered to Alexander, who then made for the Oxus. The Oxus, the modern Amu Daraya, is almost 1,500 miles long and flows into the Aral Sea. Interestingly, look at a photograph of the Aral Sea. Formerly the world's fourth largest lake, it is now less than 10% of its original size, and has been called one of the world's worst environmental disasters. It is something I do know about, but yet I'm shocked every time I hear it. Anyway, the Oxus. It is a deep, wide river, with a strong current and a sandy bottom making it impossible to drive piles into its bed, making it impossible to build a bridge. Although the bigger problem would probably be that there are barely any trees in the Eurasian steppe to collect 
wood for a bridge. Or boats. First things first, Alexander dismissed his troops, who were unfit for service along with the Thessalian volunteers. Then he got to work on how to cross the river. His solution was to have the hides which served the men for tents collected and filled them with dry rubbish, then sewed them together to make them watertight. Within five days, the men had crossed the Oxus on these. Bessus had again failed to hold back Alexander. Alexander was en route to Bessus at his fastest pace, when reports came in that Spitarmenes and Dataphernes were planning to arrest Bessus. These reports were inaccurate. They had arrested Bessus. Alexander slowed down the assault and sent Ptolemy ahead to negotiate on his behalf. After covering a ten-day march in four days, Ptolemy reached where Spitarmenes and Dataphernes were holding Bessus. Ptolemy announced if they surrendered, there would be no punishment to any Persians. They promptly surrendered. They all returned to Alexander, and Ptolemy asked Alexander how he wanted Bessus to be brought to him. Alexander replied he wanted Bessus to be stripped and put in a dog collar, and be placed on the right of a road which his whole army would march past. The orders were carried out. Alexander stopped his chariot when he passed Bessus, and asked him why he treated Darius, his king, kinsman, and benefactor, so poorly, seizing him and putting him in chains before killing him. Bessus said that many had done this to Darius, not just him, and that he had done it to please Alexander and save their lives. Alexander ordered him to be whipped, and at every lash a crier would repeat his excuses. He was then sent to Bactria to be executed. Plutarch states that he was executed by being tied to the top of true trees, which were bent, so their tops almost met. Then the trees were sprung back, ripping Bessus in two. This marks a change in our story. Since episode 4, I've been telling you of the Macedonian and Greek campaigns against the Persians. Now this campaign is effectively over. This will result in a change in the show's format. Rather than running a comprehensive narrative, which I have for a while, in the next episode I'm going to condense Alexander's campaigns in Central Asia into a few topics, mostly several plots and conspiracies. The episode after, we'll resume the narrative, beginning a series of episodes in India, before bringing Alexander back to the centre of his empire, where he will make many plans, but death will come too quickly to see these plans fulfilled. Remember to go online and visit our website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast for the latest news. Check out the YouTube channel youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast and if you have any questions about anything don't hesitate to send me an email at 
thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, here's an idea. Go to the website and click on the Amazon banner. It will take you to the regular Amazon store, where you can buy their products. If you do, I'll get a small cut of whatever you spend. Hey, Christmas is coming, and if you want to buy some presents, what's a great way to do it? This week, I'm going to recommend a book I'm reading at the moment, and indeed stayed up much too late last night reading it. It's called 11.22.63, and is by Stephen King. I'll read you the blurb. Jake Epping is an English teacher in Lisbon Falls, Maine, who makes extra money teaching in an adult education programme. One day, he receives an essay from one of his students, a harrowing first-person story about the night 50 years earlier when Harry Dunning's father came home and killed Harry's mother, his sister and his brothers with a sledgehammer. Later, Jake's friend Al, who runs the local diner, divulges an extraordinary secret. His storeroom is a portal to 1958. He enlists Jake on an insane, and insanely possible, mission to try and prevent the Kennedy assassination. Inspired by the desire to do the right thing for Harry Dunning, Jake leaves a world of iPods and mobile phones for a new world of Elvis and JFK, of big American cars, root beer and lindy hopping. It is a haunting tale of a troubled loner named Lee Harvey Oswald and a beautiful high school librarian named Sandy Dunhill, who becomes the love of Jake's life, a life that transgresses all the normal rules of time. With extraordinary imaginative power, King explores the culture of the era and weaves it into a devastating exercise in escalating suspense. 11.22.63 is a love story, a tribute to a simpler time and place, and a heart-stopping what-if, tour de force, the like of which no one has ever read. I'd like to thank Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time for the executions of Philotas, Parmenio, and Cleisthenes, along with the murder of Clytus, and maybe, just maybe, if you're really lucky, more advertisements. <laughs> <laughs>